Take your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 6 as we prepare for your favorite sermon. So preach another genealogy. I know these are the passages that you memorize, that when you're scared or afraid or lonely, you recite to yourselves the clans of Simeon. We know all God's Word is profitable. Some of it is just very easily accessible. This is not. God willing, we will see the great prophet by the end, though. God's Word, Exodus chapter 6, verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul. The son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the years of life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Years of life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Joshebed, his father's sister. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zechri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab and the sister of Nashon. She bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. We're going to stop there and literally only cover the genealogy. Let's ask God's blessing. I suspect we need it. Lord, we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you for the easy passages, the promises where we know you will never leave us nor forsake us, the promises that you will bring to completion all good things that you do. We're glad that those are so easily accessible, for we are such weak creatures. We do likewise give great praise and thanksgiving for difficult passages like this, as it instills humility 
you wrote this. You thought out of all of the words that could ever be written, these are some of the most important words for humans to have. That's so hard for us to understand. So we pray that you would give us humility, but that you would also give us understanding. For Christ's sake, amen. take you back to a moment. This moment might have happened when you were a kid. It might have happened last week. I guess part of it depends on how much you read and what kind of books you read. Maybe it's a mystery. Maybe it's an adventure book. Maybe it's a a fantasy novel with the swords and the shields and the heroes or whatever. But it, it arrives at a point in the book. It's usually maybe a third of the way in where some kind of major plot moment hits. Perhaps the young good guy has actually come face to face with the old bad guy and oh no, they're going to have their first conflict. Perhaps in in the murder mystery, it's the moment where the person that you suspect is the actual killer is in the same room alone with your favorite character. Oh no, will they make it? And as you read along, you get to the end of the page, and you're like, ooh, I'm excited. And you get to the, next to the, you know, the top of the next page, and ooh, I'm excited, and it's good, and this is my favorite part. And you flip the page, and you know exactly what's on the top of the next page, don't you? It's a chapter break. And you're like, oh, yes, this is the chapter where everything happens. And you get the first sentence out, and what is it? A totally different thing. Ah, What happened? Does the dragon get him? Does it happen? Does the butcher actually kill the neighbor? What happens? I I don't know. What's the end of the story? I know it's a bit of a reach. Some of us don't actually read anymore. I'll I'll kind of put it a little bit lower lower level. It's the point where they've all turned in their little cakes that they bake to the judges, and they have to decide who's getting chopped. What does it do every time? Every single one of those shows, it does not matter which brand of it you watch, what does it always do? It cuts to commercial. You absolutely know it. Why does it do that? Well, obviously for the commercials to make money, but why does it do that? Why why do they put the commercial there? Why does the author interject the, the completely different character? Why do they take you from the room with the killer, maybe, maybe not, into another part of the story entirely? Well, I mean, you know, it's good storytelling. We know because it gives us that little pit in our stomach where we're like, I have to know what happens. Maybe you were that kid that you actually skipped the chapters. Oh, some of you know exactly who you are. You just skipped all the in-between pages to find out what happens in the room. Really good storytellers, though. They don't waste that change. They use it. They use it to increase the drama of the moment. They use it to to get the hook set, to to have the tension just rile you up. And a really good author 
introduces the next section of the book. All of the new characters, all of the important people, all of the things that you need to know get introduced in the next couple of pages. But you're so anxiety-ridden about the previous ones that half the time you miss it. I'll let you know a little secret. The Holy Spirit is a brilliant author. Moses is too. In Exodus, we've hit that moment. Chapters 1 through the first half of chapter 6. My goodness, what drama. I mean, just, just turn back and just take your brain out of the Sunday school class and the flannel graph and, and just for a moment ponder what has happened. Israel has come to Egypt and has exploded numerically. There's a reason for that. I'm going to tell you in just a minute. Pharaoh hates them. Persecution is on the rise. They're actively trying to kill them, even to the point where they're killing babies. How bad does your country have to be for you to actively kill babies? Don't answer that if you watched the news this week in the country in which we live. And in the midst of this, God provides this one unique, beautiful baby who is miraculously saved by the most unlikely candidate. He's saved by Pharaoh's daughter. He's raised in the house of the enemy. He's given all of the privileges of Egypt. He decides anyways to side with Israel. And then he turns into a murderer. And you're like, I'm so confused. The drama. And this amazing guy turned murderer, maybe possible bozo, we're not sure at this point in the story, flees out into the boonies, turns into just an ordinary common shepherd, a thing that Egyptians hate more than anything else, until God meets him. And the Lord meets him in the most extraordinary day, in the middle of the most ordinary day. And that's going to be significant. That the Lord does this extraordinary meeting where a burning bush that's burning in a way that is bizarre but then doesn't stop burning in the middle of an ordinary day for Moses, suddenly God meets him. And God gives him this staggering command. Moses, You will be my representative. You will go and you will defeat Egypt. I mean, again, put put that in perspective. Can you imagine if sometime in the last decade, the president had called you up and said, oh yeah, by the way, you're my representative. I'm sending you to go parlay with Al-Qaeda. You're our only person. You're our woman. You're our man. I mean, we're clever. (laughs) We're not that clever. I mean, we're lovely and such. We're not that convincing, I'll be honest. 
The most amazing thing, the drama, so intense, and God providing Aaron, his brother, to go with him, and Aaron and Moses go into Pharaoh's absolute, you know, into his presence and, and demand that God, uh, that Pharaoh release God's people. And Pharaoh's like, uh, why are you not working again? Be gone. Stop talking, go work. God promises deliverance again, and who's going to win? And of course, we know the end of the story, so it kind of takes the drama out a little bit for us. But at this point, the way that Exodus is intentionally being written, you don't know the end of the story. You don't know who's going to come out top dog. Is it, is it going to be Moses, God? Is it going to be Egypt? I mean, thus far, Moses has been fighting against the God who sent him even highlights it at the end of this chapter, talking back to God again. Egypt, most powerful nation on the planet. And right when it comes to blows, right when it's about to come to a head, in fact, actually, if you're in the ESV, you see chapter 6, the title heading here, we're in the genealogy, chapter 7 is where the first plague hits. I mean, this is like the drama is so thick you can't see straight. And if you're just reading through the book and actually paying attention and doing the work to kind of sort it out and figure it out, verse 14 comes a little bit like that moment you had reading the book, uh, reading the story as a child, reading, uh, you know, your murder mystery where you're going, I want to know what happens next. Is God going to win? How is he going to defeat Pharaoh? How is he going to defeat Moses? And you get to verses 14 through 25. I'm going to preach a slightly different sermon. It's only going to have one point. It's going to have a whole lot of different iterations of that point, but it's only going to have one point. And that point is extremely important in the narrative of Exodus because most of us, when we read the scriptures, we love to find examples of ourselves and find examples of what we're supposed to be and not be. And that's okay, that's fine. It's not the only way to pay attention to the scriptures. And in fact, actually, probably not the best way, but it is a way. And it sometimes is a little bit of a challenge for us. Because as we go through the book of Exodus, we're like, the man can put his hand in his coat, pull it out, and is diseased. And I only do that when I'm changing diapers. <laughs> I can't relate. The man can throw his staff down and it turns into a snake. He's, he's doing combat against the most powerful man in the world. And I'm negotiating with a two-year-old. And I can't relate. And he has God directly speaking to him in a burning bush. And all I have is the scriptures. By the way, we have it better than he did. And for some of us, books like Exodus are hard because it's a string of the miraculous. It's a string of the stories of God doing the most amazing things. And all I do is load the dishwasher and I don't understand. I I don't load the dishwasher, but you get the point. Chapter 6, verses 14 through 25 are imperative to the story. And I would humbly suggest that if you don't understand these verses, you will not understand the larger point of Exodus. And it is this. 
God's primary way of working is in the ordinary and day-to-day. His primary way of working is through changing diapers and loading dishwashers. His primary way of working is in your commute to work. It's in students when you have to do your homework. His primary way of working is in the day-to-day. I recognize for some of you that that's going to be a bit of a challenge. When I was young, I wanted to be the smartest man in the world and the greatest man in the world, which is ironic because I'm neither and can change neither of those things. But it shows a lot because that was right before I wanted to be a hobo. So it should let you know where that was (laughs) in my own personal development. But many of us are in love with the idea of this greatness. It's, again, the great American dream of the ordinary man or woman who suddenly is thrust into the spotlight and becomes the great hero, the great savior of mankind. And unfortunately, so often the result of that is that we demean dishwashers and diapers. Verses 14 through 25 are a genealogy. And in fact, actually, you probably have already forgotten almost every word I read. Our brains aren't trained to handle this kind of thing. It's not uh, part of how we think. In fact, most of the names are difficult for us to even get the syllables correct. And you're wondering, even as I read them, is he going to goof up? I assure you, I've never goofed up reading a name ever, even if I say it, what you think is incorrect. I'm sure I said it right. (laughs) That was a joke. But here the Lord is displaying his mighty power in the ordinary, in the day-to-day, in dishwashers and diapers. These are the heads of their father's houses. We're introduced to a genealogy, and the genealogy begins with those that largely come out of what will be the land of Israel and come into Egypt. It takes us to the 12 tribes, and it doesn't give us all of them. It doesn't take us through all of the details. It's a very selective list, and it's very selective on purpose. It first begins by framing the backdrop of Old Testament culture and Old Testament narrative. It begins with the oldest. These are the sons of Reuben. He is the firstborn of Israel. Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. Those are actually pronounced mostly correct. These are the clans of Reuben. It, it sets the backdrop. God works through the firstborn. That's his pattern. That's the, the normal life. The normal way that God works in the scriptures is to work through the firstborn. It's setting us up so that any time we see him working intentionally through anyone other than the firstborn, it's setting off little bells and whistles in our minds. Ooh, what is God doing? Jacob, not Esau. Ooh, what is that? He's working through the secondborn. This is amazing. In fact, actually, it's going to matter in just a few verses because he's choosing Moses, not Aaron. He's putting on display, even in a simple genealogy, that he works through the ordinary. Birth order. 
but he's not bound to the ordinary. He does what he pleases. But that God loves to work in normal ways. And again, I, I would suggest there's this message is such a hard concept for Americans to, to get. So much of the American church bears the, the lineage of the Great Awakenings. Which Great Awakening? First one particularly. Good, mostly. Second one, that's to be debated. But we have the lineage of the Great Awakenings, and so, so much of the American church longs to exist on those mountaintop transformative moments. We long to exist in the moments of revival, and revival is good. We long to exist in the miraculous and have slowly come to despise the mundane. And the problem is, God's primary way of operating is in the mundane. His primary way of operating for you today is not in miraculously causing a lightning bolt to zap your forehead so you suddenly have the entirety of the scriptures memorized and understood in complete complexity. His primary mechanism of operating is when you wake up or before you go to bed, you read the Bible every day, even if just a little. But we long for that magic bullet we long for that shortcut, don't we? I mean, I'll be honest, I do. I don't want to have to put in the hard work. I don't like work. Well, I mean, I like the work I do. Works to the ordinary. Sons of Reuben. Sons of Simeon. And then to Levi. Verse 16. This is where everything changes. Again, we largely, being Gentiles in this room, these things don't kind of resonate with us. We don't have all of the Old Testament, you know, memorized in detail. Uh, Most of us in the room, some do. Um, So we don't catch the names immediately and to think of what the implications are going to be later. The sons of Levi, Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, Years of life of Levi being this, and then Gershon has Libni and Shimei and their clans. Kohath has Amram, Ishar has Ron, Uziel. It's highlighting the priesthood that's going to show up in just a little bit. The priesthood that's going to be established in the following chapters, well, books really. The priesthood that's going to become the heartbeat of Israel is being explained in its origins right here. Tell you, I said really good authors use the interludes to kind of foreshadow what's coming. The Holy Spirit is doing this now in this. He's, he's giving us warning so that our... Ears catch later. Oh, I know that name. I remember that name. Remember God doing something with that. It's also highlighting for us down into verse 20. Amram took as his wife Joshebed, his father's sister. She bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. This is intriguing. It's highlighting for us, Moses and Aaron, what their lineage is. They are Levites. And they're Levites both on their mom's side and their dad's side because their family tree doesn't entirely split. 
It has a gap, but it kind of rejoins. Which again, we years, millennia later, 3,400 years later, think about that and go, well, that's kind of icky. Amram married his aunt. This is actually where suddenly the details become really important. One, they don't actually have the Levitical law yet that says that's not okay. Uh, It is amusing that when they translated the Hebrew into Greek, they made it into the Septuagint. Uh, The the gentleman who translated this portion found it so odious, he altered it to say it wasn't his aunt, it was his cousin. Makes me laugh. But actually, there's a couple of key pieces of information that we've actually already read through that our ears didn't catch that are extremely important. The years of the life of Levi being 137. And the years of the life of Kohath being 133. And the years of the life of Amram being 137. It's actually amusing. You realize that the entire Exodus, their entire time in Egypt is four generations. 430 years is four generations. Suddenly we begin to understand how, how Israel grows in Egypt, don't we? We have their lifespans specifically noted for us, and they're living well into their hundreds. Fall into weird kind of study holes when I do these sermons. One of the ones I found this last week was falling down the hole of what was the average life expectancy of the ancient Egyptian? I know that's weird. My search history is probably very strange. (laughs) Article coming out of the University of London, peer-reviewed journal article, average life expectancy of an Egyptian approximately at the time of the Exodus. Men lived longer than women. Uh, Obviously, that's due to pregnancy. Uh, Women, uh, your life expectancy was 30. So most of you had a good run. We'll catch you later. (laughs) And men, you were 34. So I had a good run. I'll catch you later. But Israel's living a long time. They're not dying. Not at the same rate. In fact, actually, it makes marrying the aunt a little bit less strange because the life cycle was so long, the ages would have been so much more compressed. To think that you would have had the opportunity, should uh, you know, something terrible, accidental not happen, to see your great, great, great grandchild, most likely. It's the same thing you think about before the flood. You know, before the flood, there's probably billions of people on earth before the flood simply because they lived a thousand years and just didn't die. The Lord's using just their, their lifespan to reshape the world, to provide for Moses and Aaron to come, and for them specifically to come from a, an arrangement where they are both noted to be priests on both sides, which for us are like, who cares? <laughs> But these men are going to be people who lead Israel for a generation and they lead a disgruntled Israel. An Israel that's going to grumble and complain every step of the way. And it's interesting that God causes, even in their birth, they have the perfect resume. You ever think about that? Their genealogy, their DNA is the perfect resume for the job. The Lord using something so simple 
as a man and a woman falling in love, something so complicated as his aunt, to provide for Moses and Aaron the perfect reputation. They are priests, and they are pure priests, ready to serve the Lord. Israel should not grumble about them. They should not complain against them. They have the right genealogy. They have the right lineage. They have the right family. They have the right title. It doesn't stop there. It continues. There's all kinds of little nuggets. I'm not going to take you through all of them. It is significant, though, that you have verses 24 and 25, because again, as any good author, foreshadowing, dropping the names or appearances of other characters, so when they show up, you hear of them and go, oh, yes, I remember that name. Verse 24. The sons of Korah. It's going to be one of the great difficulties in Moses' life where his cousin stages a rebellion. It's amazing. We, we, we have these great stories in Exodus. We forget just, there's cousins. It's how God's working is. It's, when the Pharaoh he's dealing with is probably his step-uncle. Ordinary mechanisms to do the extraordinary Korah's rebellion explained in verse 24 with the sons of Korah. It's interesting that Korah is the bad one. The sons end up staying good and writing some of the Psalms, actually. And they're listed by name. Asir, Elkanah, Abiasaph, the clans of the Korahites, the good guys, the ones that make it after Korah is the bad guy. Now you have told of Aaron's son, Eleazar. And she bore him, Putiel bears him, Phineas. Phineas is going to be one of the great heroes in Old Testament history. His name you don't really remember. In Numbers, where God's people are, uh, we'll gently put it for gentle younger ears, they are adulterating themselves uh, before the Lord. Uh, And I mean that actually in the full literal sense of that, not the figurative sense. They're actually literally adulterating themselves before the Lord. And Phineas honors the Lord by grabbing a spear and goes and starts running people through. Uh, That's right before the plague hits and kills something like 25,000 of them. So God finishes his job for him. But he's one of the great heroes in the faith. And he's just mentioned just in passing, coming in a normal and ordinary genealogy. It's interesting, Moses, Moses' genealogy is not mentioned in here. His family's not mentioned. His children aren't mentioned. You know why? Because they turn out rotten. His son actually is a plague upon Israel. Not named. Ordinary fathers and sons. I think this is incredibly important for us to remember as the people of God today is that here we have God's working and there's so much in this passage. I don't have time to say it all. But it's really being listed as, look, this person fell in love and had babies. And this person fell in love and had babies. And this person fell in love and had babies. And guess what? God used that over and over and over and over again. A couple of takeaways just from the beginning. First is the Lord loves babies. We read that actually already. I don't know if you picked up on that. 
the Lord Jesus, where he's saying, you know, it's better to throw the weight and chuck them into the sea because he loves children. Children have been included in the covenant from the very beginning. They've been included in God's plan from the very beginning. And he uses first and foremost the family. That's important for us to remember as we grow as a body here because some of us have biological family in the church. Some of us don't. Some of us are single. Some of us are married. Some of us have kids. Some of us don't. But to be reminded, this, the family is the mechanism that God has designed for uh, his kingdom to grow through. And the church is replicating that family. It's important when uh, we do have baby noises in the worship service. It's important when we have the inconveniences of sometimes trying to figure out how do we, how do we work nursery stuff uh, with activities of the church that are going to come. The Lord works through the family. He works through babies. In fact, actually, it's really probably a very important thing to think about if you're on the older side of the spectrum in the room. Just doing the math numerically, um, you're, you're probably closer to approaching that 87 average And the little ones in this room are the ones who will take the faith on to the next generation. It is unbelievably important that we invest in them. Because we are not guaranteed very many more days. And if the statistics hold the way they normally do, these little faces are the ones that take the gospel to the nations after we're gone. Secondly, to be reminded that... um, God works through the ordinary, but a lot of times you have no understanding of that in the moment. I think that's my favorite part of this is that you think of all of these people that are being named in the moment when this is happening, nobody catches the significance of what's being said. You have to think at, at some point, you know, first guy reading this is like, why did you include Phineas? He's not the firstborn. You just put his name at the end. What are you doing? Normal and ordinary. God working through the patterns, the rhythms of the world. Changing diapers, loading dishwashers, daily Bible reading, conversations with your sisters and brothers, obedience to your parents, disciplining your children, coming to church, the normal rhythms of life. There's a famous quote from Daniel Webster. Uh, I don't think he intended it necessarily to be biblical, but it captures the idea very well. Habit is the daily battleground of character. What he meant by that is you don't make your character in one heroic moment. It's made through a lifetime of simple, small, and unnoticed decisions. That's oftentimes how God works. You see, I'm actually setting you up for something along the way here, too, is... There's one other really key piece of information that I have neglected to tell you as we went past. Verse 23. Aaron took as his wife, Elisheba, daughter of Amenadab and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu, by the way, are priests. They're killed on their ordination day for disobeying God and worship. A little different today, thankfully, when pastors mess up. 
Uh, Eleazar and Ithamar, they continue to be priests. And already all of you went, that was a cool verse. Thank you, Michael. I, I had forgotten about Nadab and Abihu. Number six just didn't spring to mind. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. But you missed Aminadab and Nashon. You know Aminadab and Nashon. You know them very well. Because we read their names every December. Because the great, 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 great grandson is a poor carpenter boy named Jesus. It's pretty cool. That buried in the middle of Exodus 6, when we're expecting it to be miracles and plagues, Jesus shows up. Most unexpected fashion. He shows up in the marriage of his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. And just noticed in passing to think that God is at work in ways that we do not understand. I would make a quick application off of that one for all of us. There are some of us in the room that are very weary with the task that God has placed in front of us. Some of us might be very tired of what he has called us to do. My simple encouragement would be Do not grow weary in doing good, for you do not know the good that God is doing. Friends, our our perspective on time is so small. I mean, think about just how many times in a normal week you you go, how did we misunderstand each other? We, We can't even fully understand what other people around us are saying, much less understand the fullness of what God is doing. Do not grow weary in doing good, for you do not know the good that God is doing. And I love here, it's already being set up that the Lord Jesus would show up from the lineage connected to a line that has both priesthood and king in the same line. Really interesting. The Lord Jesus would show up and be the fulfillment of all of the activity here. All of the good that God is doing comes to a head in the Lord Jesus. All of the kindness that God shows comes to a head in the Lord Jesus. All of the mercy that God shows comes to a head in the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus has promised us that He will be with us, even through the mundane, and that He will use us, even through the mundane, and that He will use the mundane even in us. May it be that we pause and even today just reflect for a little bit and marvel at the complexity of God's plan and how marvelously he uses boring things like genealogies so that Jesus would show up and we might praise him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you. That is so full of good stuff, even genealogies. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we judge passages like this by our own standards, and in doing so, we only display our own weakness. We get grumpy with how you work. Lord, we also have to confess that so often right now, many of us, we get grumpy about the task that you have called us to, whether that's diapers and dishwashers or presbytery. Lord, we confess our sin. 
We're not called to be grumpy at your plan. We're called to be active, obedient, and faithful. May we be faithful with dishwashers and diapers so that if we are ever called to do something like die, we would be faithful in that too. And we know it will only be by your mercy and it will only be by Christ's merit that any of this can happen. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.